Now, you've just entered the, uh, the law offices of Quibble, Squabble, and Bicker. If you've come for actual legal advice, you need to turn right around, honey. You need to get out of here, because you ain't going to get none of that. They quibble, and they squabble, and they bicker. But if you want to hear meaningless opinions, this is the right place. They got plenty of that. Stuff that makes no sense at all. They go off on tangents. It's crazy talk. If that's your thing, keep listening. They'll keep talking. Oh, no, no. Oh, no, no. It's another episode of the Law Offices of Quibble, Squabble, and Bicker. You've entered the Law Offices of Quibble, Squabble, and Bicker. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Law Offices of Quibble, Squabble, and Bicker on this March 24th, 2021. We have an incredibly special guest for you guys here tonight. Unexpected. He is a true captain of industry. Uh, this is the chairman of the board and CEO for Allied Artists International. And he is going to be talking to us about whatever he wants to because we can only bow to him. And our, he will be helping us as a, a guest fake attorney with our client, uh, Dead Rockers, where are they now? Sometime later on in the episode if we don't get sidetracked too much on his particular life. So that being the case, I'll start things off. Um, you know, this is going to be kind of a random question. One of the things I did find out about you is that you had been knighted by the order of Constantine the Great. So technically you are Sir Kim Richards. And I'm wondering, has that allowed you to like start your own round table or create by get, obviously you have a page or a squire getting you your drink. Um... <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I wanna let you know that I'm pretty sure that, that uh, what is it? Uh, uh, squib uh, quibble, squabble and bicker has represented me on a number of occasions. <laughs> <laughs> we get around us right yeah, but we yeah, have right. lots of affiliates that's right <laughs> we got um, oj off <laughs> uh, <laughs> i uh i was knighted that by the way that um it's by the the dutch royal family oh okay oh. and so i was knighted by the the dutch royal family and as i said at the time i said i've been called a lot of things in my life but never sir <laughs> <laughs> I feel what was that. your service to their government that they knighted you what? no it, it was for uh philanthropy that i had been involved in i, I the the clinton uh organization or the uh clinton i can't remember the exact name of it but the uh for uh various humanitarian projects i've been involved in over the years right the clinton foundation the, the big one they have right yeah, it is, I, I guess it is called the Clinton Foundation. I think that's what it's called. I think. Yeah. Well, I used to I used to be able to rattle it off like that, but I haven't dealt with it in a while. Yeah, that was. But it wasn't good. just that. I've done a, a lot with the cancer research and things of that nature. Yeah, because that was around twelve years ago. So I know that I have difficulty remembering things from that long ago too. Twelve minutes ago, I had trouble. <laughs> I, I was going to say I, I I'm I'm struggling to remember lunch. I'm on the East Coast, <laughs> by the way. So somehow you got wrangled into uh, appearing on our podcast. They would greatly appreciate this. Uh, could you give us some background on like, where, what part of the country are you from? How did you grow up? How did you wind up eventually being in this position? Because you've been in the position, like I said, for like 30 years. So something led to that. I know that you were involved in the production of Pink Floyd's The Wall at some point, but 
what if you don't mind taking us through that journey for a bit okay well i grew up in first of all i'm right from uh, from here in los angeles and i grew up if you're familiar if are any of you from los angeles i lived there oh. for a time in okay. glendale okay. actually I in glendale okay. as a child yeah i got uh, mugged in glendale Anyway. <laughs> well, I can't think of a better place to get mugged. But <laughs> I you, just stating for the record, it was not me that mugged him. We were no, in Glendale okay. at the same time, but I wasn't. It was, involved. but it's a great story. We'll get into that sometime. <laughs> <laughs> well, is anybody familiar with the Greek theater? Was that Orpheum? No, no. The, the Greek hmm. theater is a a place in uh, Griffith Park that is a very uh, famous. Uh, oh yeah. Theater. If if you're familiar with Neil Diamond, Hot yeah. August Night, it was yeah, recorded yeah. there. Um, Carol King recorded uh, her live album there, and it's uh, at the time that uh, that I the time frame I'm talking about was uh, 1969 um, through the the mid 70s, and uh, now. Uh, before that, when I was about four years old, my family lived on the hill just above the Greek theater. And I would listen to uh, the music coming from the Greek theater. It was wow. People like Nat King Cole, Judy Garland, Keeley Smith, uh, uh, artists of that, of that era. And if you're from, if you, the, it, Greek theater is located in a place called Vermont Canyon, and the music would radiate uh, through the canyon, and I could hear it every night from my home. So as a four or five-year-old, I would sit on, on this wall just listening to the music, and it intrigued me. I really liked it. It was, uh, it was just something about it that, that uh, drew me to it, sort of like the Pied Piper. And when I was 13 years old, I ventured down the hill to the uh, to the Greek theater, and uh, I walked up and said, um, uh, "What can I do to work here?" They looked at me at thirteen and they said, "Nothing. Maybe you could be a usher." I said, "Well, does an usher get to stay in during the show?" "Yes." I said, "Then I want to do it." So I got uh, I, I don't know if you can call it hired because they didn't pay us in cash. They gave us these little tear off things that you get. So many of you get a free ticket. Well, I didn't need a free ticket. I was there every night. So I would give the tickets to my friends. And uh, I used to use my ability to get into the facility uh, as an usher to hang out with the sound guys. The what sound guy. Your, sorry to interrupt you, but you must have heard a tremendous amount of artists at the time is there a particular one in particular that stands out is like that affected you the most wow there were so many yeah uh, i was there for hot august night okay for the recording of hot august night and i later the funny thing is is that all of the people that were involved with um with neil diamond such as his publicist uh norman winter and the the man who really discovered him uh uh, uh, Russ Reagan, uh, and brought and really broke him and Elton John and and uh, uh, Olivia Newton John. Uh, Russ Reagan beca later became a very very good friend um, and a, a business associate. 
And so, but anyway, the, um, so I started working at the, I started working at the Greek theater uh, as an usher, but I uh, started hanging out with the sound guys. Eventually the sound guys thought, I, I guess they thought I had potential. They went to the usher, uh, the fellow who ran the ushers and said, hey, can you leave him on the usher so he can get in, but can he work with us? And oh, I wow. wasn't supposed to, but that's, that was how I got involved with the, uh, in music. And, and how old were you at the time when they, they kind of sort of brought you into the fold? At the, the I, that was the first year, so it's about 13. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you were like a little apprentice. Nice break. That's cool. Yeah. I can't well, even imagine. I can't even imagine being able to sit up there as a kid and listen to it. And, and obviously that had a huge impact on you. And I think anyone with a soul would, that would have an impact on. Well, because uh, I was with the sound guys, I was able to go anywhere I wanted within the facility. Oh, and cool. I learned an awful lot about, I mean, I learned everything from them about sound and electronics. They, one of the engine, one of the, uh, this, the, he might've even been the lighting engineer, but he, he took me down and he showed me if, if anybody's familiar with electronics, what a relay is, you can, um, it's basically an electromagnet. You energize electromagnet and it causes the, the contacts to make, to make contact. And so you can take uh, high voltage electric electrical items and with low voltage, you can control them from a distance. I think they put and, one of those in my head when I was brought back to life. <laughs> well, that, that sounds like another story. <laughs> I, have, I have the remote control right here, man. Hold on. Yeah. <laughs> Which one is Quibble? <laughs> Matt. Well, oh, okay. I get accused of that, but we don't represent the names in any way. They were, those are long dead partners. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, uh, that's sort of what started my career because uh, the sound guys took me uh, really into their into their group, and they allowed me uh, they allowed me to to learn sound through them. And eventually, uh, and I was there for a number of seasons. At that time, the Greek theater only had only had seasons during the summer, and every, the acts would be there for an entire week as opposed to a night or two. Uh, the way it is now, but anyway, um, if the uh, if the act, the opening act, for instance, didn't have a sound man, the the engineers that worked for the Greek theater would be their sound their sound uh, uh, engineer, and they started letting me learn to mix with those uh, initially just for sound checks, and then eventually they let me actually mix. Well, one of the opening acts didn't have their own sound, their own sound man. They were letting me mix. And I just loved the act. I just thought this act, I, I was hearing things that were amazing to me. And I, and so I wasn't really mixing for the audience. I was mixing for me. I was mixing to hear what I wanted to hear in music. And at the end of the week, I was putting some mics up backstage. And one of the band members uh, walked up to me and said, he said, let me see if I get this straight. I'm told you mixed for us. <laughs> I mean, at that time, I was probably 15. Yeah. And uh, I said, yeah, I did. And he says, well, we're being told that it was one. Of, it was the best sound uh, we've had ever. <laughs> That's wow. Awesome. Yeah. And I said, well, great. Thank you. And he says, what do you do during the school year? 
I don't get him to go to school. Is <laughs> well, we're going to be opening. Uh, we're going to be like the house band at a local place uh, called the Sop with Camel. Nobody'd ever heard of it because it was brand new. Wasn't that He's, Snoopy's name for his doghouse? Well, yes, but it <laughs> came. It, 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 the actual Sop with Camel was an actual uh, plane from, I guess, World War II or something. Yeah. And there was a, a replica of it inside this theater. Well, yeah. now they asked me to uh, to mix for them, and I said I would I would love to. And I was so young that I could not um, I could not stay in the the club unless I was working. When I wasn't working, I had to literally leave and go stand out in the in the parking lot because I was too young to be in where they served alcohol. So oh, if you had right. to go to the restroom, you had to literally go out to the alley to use it, and then they'd let you back. <laughs> I believe they let me use the restroom, but uh, they they and actually they were fairly liberal on that. I stayed in as long as I looked like I was doing something. Nobody bothered me. <laughs> right, so I'm curious, what's the big reveal? What's the name of the band? Who are these guys? Ah, they might cut. Am I cutting to the chase too? Quickly? How did you? It's great. I don't know how you figured that out, but it was Steely <laughs> Dan. Oh He's wow! Just, wow! Steely okay, Dan is the ones that you at the age of fifteen. Holy crap! <laughs> but I didn't get to do that very long at the at the Sop with Camel because they had a hit, and they came to me and and said, uh, "Hey, look, uh, we're not going to be playing here anymore." Uh, <laughs> but they said, uh, "We have a, there's a tour that we'd like to hook you up with if you're interested going through Australia." And I said, "Yes, I'll do it." They said, we haven't even told you who it is. It doesn't matter. I want to go to Australia. So and, was it both Walter Becker and Donald Fagan who came to you? Or, um, no, it was some... Donald Fagan. It was Fagan. Donald okay. Fagan. Wow. okay. Yeah. But um, so anyhow, it turned out that the, the act going through Australia uh, was the Bay City Rollers. And the Bay wow. City... Yeah, and the Bay City Rollers, which wasn't exactly my cup of tea, although I got along with them and really liked them. Uh, I became pretty good friends with Leslie McEwen. And there, the opening act for the Bay City Rollers was a young chap by the name of Andy Gibb. Oh, wow. <laughs> nobody knew who he was. I certainly did not know who he was. He and I became friends. And then I got to work with Andy when he came to the U.S. Well, I hope the Bee Gees knew who he was. They did. <laughs> <laughs> Some family members. So, wow. So, so Steely Dan takes you to Australia and Australia connect with Andy Gibb. So did you like tour back to the U S with Andy Gibb or you were back here and then he came and then you were there for him? No, I was actually just mixing monitors on the, on the um, uh, Australian tour with, with uh, the Bay City Rollers, but he, he, I was the youngest member of the entire of anybody there and the only person uh there that was a, a little younger than me was andy gibb and i have a suspicion that he had a question about a microphone and i think he looked at the sound guys and he said okay uh methuselah uh and so i said okay well there's somebody that looks almost my age and he came to me and asked me and then we became friends that way wow so you were now we're talking your maybe 17, 18 at this point? Yeah. Oh, I, I, I may have been 17. I can't, it, back in those days, you could, you could fly around um, without as much identification as you require now, but not <laughs> to Australia. 
So I must like maybe his, I was eighteen. His age, his age changed when he was in Australia, anyway. <laughs> well, that's because the it goes backwards. The water, right? Yeah, the toilet. Yeah. 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 When you cross the international date line, you lose five years. Yeah. <laughs> I need to get on that right now. I'm gonna yeah. I'm heading a on a flight. boat. <laughs> so you so you came back from that tour. Um, and then did you go back into the Greek theater or the South with camel or, um, well, I never worked again at the South with camel, but right. uh, just the one time. But when I came back from that tour, I started, uh, working with, uh, with other, with, uh, small artists here and there. And I then got asked to work at, for RSO records because uh, Andy was being brought to the United States and I was able to be a, a personal assistant to Andy and at the same time do some do some sound work with him. So that was, okay, so it was with RSO. And so this would have been around, what, mid-75, 76? Or? No, it was a little later than that. I can't remember exactly, but I think it was like 77, 78. Got it. And so that was like right at the cusp of Andy Gibbs' burgeoning career. Was before. Oh, he, so he was just, he, was he had, he had actually released an album. Well, I guess it was a single uh, in Australia that didn't do very, didn't do as well as he did here. And uh, Barry went to Stiggy, Stig, to Robert Stigwood and said, I think it's time we bring Andy in. And, um, and so that's why they, they decided to bring him from Australia. Got it. What was Robert Stigwood like? He seemed like a larger than life character, that guy. Was he, he was, a... well, we, we referred to him as Stiggy. And Stiggy was a very interesting combination because on one hand, he, he was uh, not easy to deal with, but on the other, he, he really had foresight. He was able to, he was able to see potential in artists. So uh his, it was it was a combination it was very hard and he had um i of course was very good friends with andy and andy ended up uh sideways with stiggy so and i never found stiggy to be particularly great you know gracious he was um <laughs> i feel like you're being really diplomatic right now <laughs> yeah. yes you're allowed to use all language here whatever you of multiple kinds, whatever you choose. You, this, yeah. is a free, this is a free open area for uh, you to speak your mind of whoever. Well, I don't, I don't want to downplay Stiggy's importance because he had, he really was great at spotting talent and developing it and promoting it, particularly at the time. None, none of the, the methods he used then would work today, but they, but they did work uh, then very well. And of course he was, um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but uh, uh, Bob Stigwood um, merged um, uh, with uh, Brian Epstein, and, uh, and so NIMS came into the, to, uh, the Stigwood organization, and so at one time, he actually managed the Beatles. Oh, oh wow. wow. It would be briefly. It was briefly. It was yeah. brief. But it was after uh, Brian Epstein <clears throat> passed. Right. If you don't mind indulging me, Kim, did you have anything to do with uh, any of the production on the Times Square album, the the out the movie that Robert Stigwood produced in 1980? No. Okay. No, by 1980, I was working for CBS Records. Yeah, I was oh. going to ask what the, what was the next door that opened for you that uh, kind of led to your merging career. 
Well, CBS um, offered me, I wanted to stay with Andy. I, I really, Andy was just a great guy. And yes, he had some, he had some issues that we all know about now. Um, but he was just a terrific guy. And I really wanted to, to hang, hang with him. But uh, I wasn't, uh, there was a fellow who, which is a completely different story, who was partners uh, with Stiggy by the name um, of Robert Fitzpatrick. Now he had been a, an attorney for the Beatles, which is undoubtedly how he met Stigwood. And he had been working there and he was uh, in essence the, who I reported to. And I really liked Robert Fitzpatrick. Well, he had left and I had an offer uh, to go over to, to CBS and uh, to work uh, to work on Pink Floyd's uh, what we thought was going to be Pink Floyd's last album, and I just couldn't pass that up. And then are you talking about the wall? The wall. Yeah, it was almost you know some people would possibly call that their last album. Um, I would disagree, but I know that there's a lot of controversy regarding that particular one in terms of how it moved into the breaking up of Pink Floyd. But um... well, actually, after after the wall there was uh an album called the final cut which right. was supposed to be the final cut yes and uh but the only one that was final for was roger yeah well i think it's mainly because it seemed more like a solo album to the other members of pink floyd and i think that was you know as was a large part of the wall anyway this is this is trivia that it's out there for anybody else to read, and I don't need to indulge my own. What was your position on the wall? Were you the main engineer? Were you the? Oh, he, he would like stand up with his elbow against it, Greg. That was yeah. I I, oh. I I was excellent at getting coffee, but <laughs> no, I I I was like a um. They first of all, they have the term second engineer, and second engineer means anybody that isn't the first. And so in an album like The Wall, well, first of all, they would record at strange, very strange uh, hours and they wouldn't necessarily record, to, they usually didn't record together. So you would have David recording at one time during the day and then you'd have uh, uh, Roger recording at another time. And David would, rec would record something and then Roger would come in and try to delete it. And, um, and so that wow. would go on and on for a while. So you wow. had to be a traffic cop, basically. Well, and then the engineers <laughs> the didn't. The engineers, um, a lot of the engineers, for the most part, sided with David because David was very. Uh, uh, when it came to, to actually performing the music and technically with a guitar, David is the master. And uh, so, if if Roger would say, "I want something corrected." Uh, just delete it. Tell them to do it again. We would uh, essentially delete a blank track, and then um, and tell them it was deleted. Then <laughs> then tell David, and he'd go in and he'd make some minor change. Then we would then that night they would tell <laughs> Roger say David went in and did exactly what you said. He'd listen to it. Says now it sounds great. <laughs> so oh my God. does Roger know that this happened? Is he aware? He may know now. Well, uh, <laughs> we'll get him. I'm message. not the only one to have revealed this. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I'm sure. I'm going to tell people that I'm the, one of the second engineers on Pink Floyd the Wall since I wasn't the first engineer. 
anyone who wasn't is a second engineer. That would be me. You're a listening engineer, is what you were. So that so that's like late seventies as well. So you're still pretty young um, at that stage, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. So now I, I did read that, that was you, 80, 81, by the way, that you have over a hundred gold, platinum and uh, diamond selling records under your belt. Well, um, the is, diamond is is the wall. That's okay. the only the only diamond I have. Got it. And it's uh, and it's for the wall. OK. And that is as second engineer. Yes. OK. Do you guys, well, as engineers, do you get like little epaulets on your uh, shoulders? <laughs> so you can determine... Those little ca campaign bars like in the military, maybe? <laughs> you get a train conductor's hat. Well, getting hat. a diamond re record is pretty good. <laughs> yeah. It, it looks very nice on your wall. Well, I meant the sound engineers, um, military. Hall of Fame. Right, exactly. There's some way to distinguish between the different, like whenever you get promoted, you know, so somebody knows. Because the fact of the matter is that the sound engineers are some of the biggest unsung heroes in the music business. Yeah. Uh, they do so much work that hardly anybody outside of the music business knows that they do to make people sound really, really good. And, uh, and, you know, most major musicians can't do without them. So, you know, I feel like there somehow needs to become more recognition. Where I don't know how that would work unless you get like your own reality show or something. Yeah. But Kim, did you ever? Oh, I, I was going to follow ask... up with that. I was going to follow up with the the earlier question regarding the the records on the wall. So, obviously, the wall is the crowning achievement since it hit diamond. What would you say would be the one that you had the most? of your fingerprints on that did the best that you're most proud of, of all those accolades? Well, let's see. Um, I, I was also an engineer on, um, uh, again, a second on uh, Queen's uh, The Game album. That's which, wow. Yeah. Love that album. And the, um, but most of the, uh, my, my real interest is in developing artists. So, Working with Andy Gibb, watching him go from, uh, he, I, I was with him for the first two uh, singles, which were off of his first album. Um, and actually his first three singles, because it was first in the, se the second album. He's the only artist, the only male artist in history to have three number one back-to-backs, but they were off of two albums. So he had the first two off the first album and the, the, the third one came off of, which was Shadow Dancing, came off the second album, but they were still back to back because they were singles. And you were the sound, you were the second engineer? Or no, engineer? no, I was working, I was working with him in okay. developing in, in his development then. I mean, I was there for, um, for some of the engineering, but I, I wasn't, I wasn't actually, uh, I wasn't fingers on the, the well, we call them faders now, but some of the studios back then were actually were actually volume controls, oh, or like, like knobs, right? Actual knobs or potentiometers. That's correct. In fact, that, that's technically your very uh, even though a volume control is a potentiometer, the the original in the real quality studios back then, the 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 potentiometers were about this big, and yeah. you would dial them like that, and they, they would there would maybe be ten. Yeah, I got to apologize had... to our audience for going sound nerd on them. But... <laughs> so, so Andy, so did, I'm assuming you maintained your friendship with Andy Gibb throughout the rest of his life. Yes. Um, 
So what, where did the, so at that stage, I think you said you wound up with CBS records. So where did you then go from there? Well, uh, I was put on loan. Uh, there was a TV show, uh, a TV show called Fridays that uh, oh. went on. You remember that show? Okay. I, I do. I, I actually used to watch that show. That's where Michael Richards came from. And uh, mm-hmm. yes, Gilbert Gilbert Godfried. Godfried. Yeah. Well, Godfrey was on Saturday Night Live, but uh... well, he I think he was on Fridays first. But um, they had great music on Fridays. They had better bands on Fridays than Saturday Night Live. They had all the more obscure, cooler bands. I remember on Fridays. I think well, they were a little edgier listen, than yeah. Saturday Night Live at the time too. That was yeah. our whole thing. Well, first of all, there's a couple of there's a couple of things people don't know about Fridays. Or they don't today is Fridays was ABC's version of Saturday Night Live. And but the difference was it was from Los Angeles. It, we broadcast from the uh, uh, son, the uh, Talmadge and uh, Prospect Studios, uh, which at that time was the Los Angeles affiliate studios of KABC. And it was owned. So part of that lot was was run by ABC TV and the other part was KABC studios. And we had our, our stage was there for Fridays. We broadcast live to the East coast and then came back and broadcast again, live to the West coast. So it was actually two shows we did each week. Wow. Wow. I didn't know that shows two live shows, two live shows. And then they would take the the two shows and edit together the best of, of both shows for reruns. Oh, interesting. But it was that's what was the end of the of the show. We actually um we were canceled. We were canceled and we were number one in our time slot. And we were only like number two in uh, uh overall for, for music programming. But it cost so much for the show that it was cheaper to cancel the show. <laughs> oh so it, it was canceled just purely for financial reasons. A hundred percent. Because wow. it was the up and coming. We had all of the young acts. Um, for instance, the first time you hear the Stray Cats in the United States was on, on Fridays. And I did all the sound for it. Wow, that's cool. I didn't know that. I mean, maybe I did, but I don't remember it. Wow, that's cool. <laughs> you sure? Yeah, I remember seeing the Clash on Fridays, the Clash way before Combat Rock, when they just yeah. did, had done London Calling. We that had was every a revelation. Um, Andy used to hang out there. It was, uh, I've got pictures of him wearing a Friday's t-shirt because they, uh, they loved having him, uh, wearing a t-shirt and uh, he never was on the show, but he, um, but he used to hang out on the set because he would come over there. We, because we were recording on Fridays after we got done, we'd go out and uh, he, he used to love uh, hamburgers and there used to be a place called all American burger, which was Andy's favorite. And it was open 24-7. So he, if he was bored, he'd come over to, this, to the studio. After we were done with the show, then we would go, um, we'd go out to, to All-American Burger together. Nice. So what toppings did you get on the burger? Um, he, I'm trying to remember what he got, but um, I think it was just ketchup and, and you know, typical cheese. And he, liked, he loved cheeseburgers. So there's yeah, a, I mean, learned hamburger say that he had to like dip the thing in mustard or anything. So okay. Matt, we promised uh, the publicist we wouldn't throw him any hardball questions. I, I was just gonna say, Matt, make it easy on him. Like it was controversial. Called, 
It was called All American Burger. It wasn't yeah. called Southwest Burger or yeah, but he's uh, Australian, Brandon. Asian so. Fusion Burger, but he was going to All American Burger. Right. Well, so he was looking for the All American. He could have done. He could have asked for like a slice of dingo on it. We don't know. <laughs> I don't well, think he... dingo is. I think that's. I don't think that they do that. I, I I'm pretty sure that his only interest in All American Burger was the burger. Yeah, <laughs> probably. <laughs> He's just eating the burger itself, just plain, no bun, no ketchup, no lettuce. So did, did you engineer all of the musical acts that came on Fridays? That was, was that I did, the, job? The, Not in their albums, but on the live show. I, I yeah, did. yeah. 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 Well, uh-huh. there, we had several sound engineers, but I was the main sound engineer at that so point. So you're was mixing there... the sound live. That's, that's kind of, uh, I think, heart attack creating, I would think, on two live shows. You know, I really enjoyed it. And the reason I enjoyed it is because, first of all, when you're mixing live, you're in a you're in a control room. You're not actually doing it like like in the, at the Greek theater. You you have a console that's some. Uh, in, in the Greek theater was kind of a pain because it was all the way in the back, and it was uh, so you had to compensate a little bit because the the sound you were hearing was a little delayed from the from the stage, and you weren't hearing what the what the front half half of the house was hearing. So you had to, you had to go and listen to what it was sound like there. So you'd understand what you were doing was affecting the front, but uh, live engineering uh, in a live theater is different than on television. On television, it's, it's more like you're mixing a record and you hear things the way, and you want to hear it the way the audience on, in, on the television land is hearing it. And so I actually enjoyed it. I thought it was fairly easy. I got it. So it doesn't have to sound good to the people in the audience, like the live audience. It doesn't sound good for the people at home. We would um, we would pipe it into the audience, and if it was sounding good going home, it would sound pretty good in the audience. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you know what you were doing. I, well, I would hope so. Anyway, otherwise yeah. I would have given you the job. And, All right, and so from Fridays, so that would have been sometime in the early '80s. Um, Fast forward a bit, so, then you in '87 you're with Allied Artists and you're the, like the CEO and chairman of the board in that like six seven year period of time. Who did you kill? Because no, I, I, that's not accurate. I not okay. No, I got headhunted from CBS to Allied Artists. Okay, and I wasn't headhunted as the CEO. I was I came in as head of productions. I was okay. a vice president of of productions, which at that time was a pretty good step forward for me. And so I came in. That's like of, not just music. Is that also film or? No. We, it, okay. That, that's a confusing part. Okay. Allied Artist Records was a separate unit from Allied Artist Pictures. Uh-huh. And the two were completely separate units. Although they were merged at the hip a little bit, they were still separate units. I was brought in to, I was headhunted to Allied Artist Records and I became the head of, of record production at that time and yeah. then um and then as uh shortly after i got there well maybe before allied artist pictures had run into some financial problems after cabaret and even though they made a lot of money in cabaret it wasn't enough uh actually the movie friendly persuasion um really sunk them uh although it was very it was a huge success it was financially uh, they they extended themselves far too much, hmm. and so uh, they went into into bankruptcy into Chapter Eleven, 
And the only allied artist that was standing was allied artist records. And we were doing very well. We were uh, very successful at that point. Who were some of your acts around then that we know, the big acts on allied artist? Well, Exodus signed uh, Renegade um, and I did all the Louis Cardenas stuff I, and I was producing some of that stuff. We did Charmaine. We had, we had a lot of the, of the 80s type acts. Uh -huh. uh, and, you know, some of the, uh, I, I, even though it wasn't my specialties, so to speak, we, we were a little heavy in the, in the metal area. Would and, you seek out acts or just once they were signed or did you actually wear like a talent scout? Part of your job? Would you well, anybody that that's actually part of the the line that we give employees that we're we're all A and R, that we're all always looking for a great act, mm -hmm. and that was one of my frustrations at CBS is that I was in A and R for a while, and uh, when I wanted to sign an act, I, whether the act was a great act wasn't always the the criteria. The criteria would run whether they were we were budgeted for it or not, and I lost a, a very good act uh, just simply because they weren't ready to to sign the act at that to any any act at that point. Okay, so who was it that you didn't get to sign that was uh, the uh, the one you were disappointed dog. about? It's like Guns and Roses or something, or uh, I don't want to. I, I don't want to uh, because it it ended. I the truth of the matter is I. I um, all right, it was the B-52s. Wow. But, uh, <laughs> but um, I gave them to um, Mo Austin's son, Michael Austin, who was the head of A&R at, at, uh, at uh, Warner Brothers. I was frustrated and we were having lunch and he, he was basically telling me, uh, I said, hey, you know, that's the way the cookie crumbles. You know, sometimes you don't get to sign that. And so I said, what are you doing tonight? Because they happened to be playing the Troubadour. And he said, why well, I said, bring a deal memo with you. And so he went and signed them. Wow. Definitely a coup for him. So nice I hope job. that he bought you bagels from that point on for the rest of his life. <laughs> Something. Yeah, at least it's not a bagel, you know. Would he Waffle. send acts your way to reciprocate? Like, oh, I can't sign this band at Warner Brothers. Maybe you'd like them. No, because he was Mo Austin. If you're familiar with Mo Austin, he's one of the stalwarts of the industry. <laughs> Mo Austin is one of the biggest names of all time. I mean, that's all the huge hits from the uh, 60s, 70s, and 80s that th went through Warner Brothers, including Frank Sinatra, were all associated with Mo Austin. He was Mo Austin's son. And so he had the power of pen no matter what. Okay. And what? Mo Austin is still like heavily so he is, involved in the music oh. industry, and he's like 100 years old. Right. Yeah, he's he's still with us, and and so is Michael. Okay, his younger brother unfortunately passed, Kenny, Man. but um, but Michael's still with us and healthy, as far as I know. <laughs> <laughs> so 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 at what point? So you were with um, Allied Artists. You were headhunting '87 to Allied Artists. Is that when you? No, got... it was earlier than that. It was earlier. Um, okay. But by '87. Uh, by 87, I was, um, I was, uh, CEO of the combined company. So you were overseeing not just music anymore, but the, the other affiliations like, uh, soundtracks and what have you. Yes. And, that, and so well, we were, were big in soundtracks back then. Okay. 
because of the film company. The, the, the record division was always the soundtrack section of the uh, portion of the film company. Any uh, soundtracks of note? Cabaret. Well, Cabaret. And Cabaret. Like that, yeah, uh, yeah that's, okay. that's a pretty big. That's but, not a small one, yeah. No, it's, yeah. It's not a lot of bigger ones than that for soundtracks. But um, <clears throat> so, over, so over the course of this time, so you've been steering the ship since 1987. So, and now you get to talk to us. And I would say this is probably the cap on your career then. <laughs> our, I, I've been steering our rudderless ship. <laughs> I think it's when he signed Rocky Kramer. Well, he's the Rocky. one who actually found Rocky Kramer, I think. Yes, yeah. I know. Yes and no. And let oh. me explain that one. Um, I had worked with Alice Cooper um, at one time. And what, during the time I was working with Alice Cooper, his guitarist was a fellow by the name of Mike Panera. Now, Mike Panera um, had previously been with a band called Blues Image. And while he was with Blues Image, he wrote and sang the, the song Ride, Captain Ride. Ride, Captain Ride, right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then he left and he went from Ride Captain, from uh, Blues Image to Iron Butterfly. Okay, and again, and when he, and uh, after after Iron Butterfly, he uh, went to Alice Cooper, and I met him there, and so I had known uh, Mike for many many years, and he he called me one day and said I um, I want to uh, introduce you to a new to a new artist. I was no longer in A and R, and I was most of my interest was had shifted by necessity to the film to the film section and um, uh, the music section was being handled by other people so i said um i said okay well that'd be great but I, you know why don't we get together for dinner he said yes he says let's do that he said but i want you to meet this this young artist i really wasn't interested in meeting any more artists i, I that flame had sort of uh at least died down and so I said, okay, but let's let, let's pl make a date for for dinner. And so he and he and his wife and I got together and we went to dinner at a Houston's. And as we got into the car, he takes a piece of paper out of his pocket and he says, okay, we need to go to this address now. And it was to um, uh, we met Rocky at a Starbucks, not too far from the Houston's, and so. I felt at that point that I had an obligation to talk to this young chap. You got hijacked. Yeah, you got Shanghai. Somewhat. <laughs> and he, he he played me a demo. Uh, Mike played me a demo off of his phone. And I, I uh, listened to this demo in the car for, you know, 60 seconds. It sounded good, but it, uh, I still wasn't all that interested. So I sat down uh, and Rocky walked up. I met him. Couldn't have been a nicer guy. And so I liked the fact that I was dealing with a really decent, a good human being. Uh, so anyway, so Rocky, um, so, I, so I asked him the obligatory question. I said, okay, so what are your influences? And he says to me right off the bat, he says, well, Queen and Pink Floyd. I said, okay, he's been reading my bio. Uh, but he hadn't. He had no clue who I was beforehand. Oh, and really? So, um, so then he uh, was, the next thing I know, 
I met him. I uh, agreed to listen to to his music, and uh, I listened to. I really thought he. I thought his. He, I, then I realized that his music was very Pink Floyd oriented, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, it's a, a concept album. And I heard it before it was anywhere near put together. And uh, I'll so all of a sudden. It, the the, uh, the juices started flowing again and I, I really saw potential in, in Rocky and I thought this is a really, this guy's got a career and a half to go. I mean, he's ahead of him. And so uh, then the next thing there was, I had an act performing with Mike at um, a, a Cinco de Mayo concert um, uh, at a festival and Rocky came on stage with Mike to just play kind of a guest spot. And, uh, and so he, um, so I was in the wings because my, my act was there and I realized that his microphone wasn't working and literally no one there went to get it to correct it, to bring him a microphone that was working. And I thought this is they're, they're kind of sabotaging this guy. And I felt sorry for him because he was working his ass off up there. So right. I walked over to the sound man. I said, give me a microphone. And uh, there was, he had a wireless in front of him. And he said, well, who are you? I said, give me a microphone. <laughs> so, <laughs> who am I? He put on his chairman of the board voice and like, give me the microphone. Well, and so I took the mic and I said, make sure this is hot when I get on that stage. So I walked it back to the stage and, and put it on a mic stand in the, in the wings and took it out and put it in front of him. We actually have a videotape of that. And he started, and then all of a sudden his mic was working. And, um, I was so impressed with Rocky's ability to put up with what was complete garbage. A lot of artists would have just gone nuts with something right. like that. He just, he just muscled through the whole thing. And now, and then I find out, I still to this day don't know how they did it, but they were part of what he was playing to was actually a playback track. And they had it on a CD. And the engineer from the booth was playing the CD. He was singing live and he was playing guitar live, but the rest was a playback track because the band hadn't learned his music, which. Oh, wow. Like Millie Vanilli. Well, no, because he was actually singing <laughs> he was live. singing yeah. this time. Right. Yeah. The and band so was. Yeah. The yeah. band was faking it. Mm -hmm. And so, but somehow they caused and i don't i literally don't know how they did this they managed to slow down a cd so the cd was actually playing slower hmm. and it was just it was bizarre but i when i saw that and i looked at the video back we had videotaped the whole thing not because of him but because of our own another artist that we had on there we videotaped it and they uh, for some reason, they rolled for Rocky. And I have that video of him. And he just he just comes through like such a champ. And I said, this is the this is the type the type of a winner that I want to be involved in. Kim, so, can I ask you a favor, a big favor? We interviewed uh, oh, no. him last week. He's a nice guy. Next time you talk to him, will you pretend you have an idea for his next album? Say, you've got to make a concept album about Vikings, Rocky. <laughs> this is the best idea. I just say you made it up yourself. 
Don't don't mention us. Okay. <laughs> Greg brings this up because we interviewed Rocky last week, and that was what we came up with for his next album was for him to do it about Vikings. So, <laughs> you know, he's a he's a great interview. He was fun. He was a yeah. Lot of fun. He was great. Yeah, he's got a great sense of humor. He's his um, his English is perfect, and yeah. he uh, and he's very bright. Yes, super nice guy. I'm curious, yeah. just to sidetrack a little bit. So now that you've been the head of Allied Artists for 30 years, what <laughs> where do you see the future of Allied Artists going? Where, where are you heading? I, I saw things where you're like really getting immersed in the digital world. Are you planning on creating like your own? podcast division that you were planning on asking us to run or <laughs> what <laughs> where do you see um, yourself going well we're certainly uh trying because of the age of the company we, we we're turning a hundred mm-hmm. um we are uh looking to to in, improve our uh our appearance so that we we don't come across as this old burned out company and yeah, stodgy burned out and so on. So we're, we're definitely uh, have an eye towards digital Mm -hmm. uh, and we're, we're heavily invested in the digital world. uh, And we, we're trying to mix, um, trying to mix films with music so that we can have some projects that are uh, movies, but music oriented movies. Are you going to be producing movies or are you going to be um, putting more films together or just strictly staying towards the soundtracks? Me personally or the company? The company, yeah. The company has, uh, we have a number of films in production right now. Oh, okay. Anything that is on the radar for like a big one? Well, are you familiar with uh, General Claire Lee Chenault? The name sounds familiar. I mean, World War I? the The Flying Tigers, World War II. I flew oh. on a flying tiger back in high school. I, I, I saw a tiger once at the zoo. No, I, I, went, to, I went to high school. It was in the Philippi- flying, though. I went to high school oh. in the Philippines, and when I graduated, I was flying back to the U.S. and I actually flew back on a flying tiger. From the there, Philippines, there actually was an airline called Flying Tiger at that time. Yeah. Oh. But the fly, the flying tigers, very, very intriguing story. And um, at just prior to the U.S. entering World War II. Uh, Japan was just uh, attacking and just beating the hell out of uh, out of China. At that time, uh, Chiang Kai-shek was uh, running China, and we were they were allies. And this fellow uh, who was a captain by the name of uh, Claire Lee Chenault was a stunt pilot, and he could fly uh, P-51s like no one. And uh, he he would get, but he was sort of like the Tom Cruise character in Top Gun, in that he uh, would he would buzz the control tower. He would fly upside down under under in military airplanes. He would fly them upside down under under bridges and things like that. And they he was forever getting into trouble for one thing or another. But right. he was it was probably one of the best pilots that anybody ever saw. So anyway. Um, he got into trouble, was going to be court-martialed, and he, but he had enough time in that he pulled the plug and retired before they could court-martial him. And so oh. after he, uh, he leaves the military, he's approached by the Chinese government and asked to come over and be a mercenary from the U.S. and fight on behalf of China and defend 
Japan, from Japan. Right. So he does. And he goes, the idea is for him to run the Chinese Air Force, which was, you know, like three planes or something. And in fact, there's a scene in the movie um, that'll probably be the trailer, so I'm not giving anything up, where he's he's in China, and uh, they're saying we only have we only have six planes, and behind him here, and she says we only have five planes. <laughs> that sounds like a good action-packed flick. I think well, uh, I like I like the storyline on it already. I, I love it. That sounds good. Yeah. But in in reality. General Chenault, who wasn't a general then, he goes in and recruits a bunch of mercenaries from the U.S. military, which was at that point, at that time, the Air Corps, the Army Air Corps, and he brings them to China and they create a, uh, a very unique bunch of pilots and they work with Chinese pilots, they train them. And the, so you've got the Chinese pilots working together with the American pilots, and they create this elite uh, bunch of pilots called that they call themselves. They, well, they the they had uh, painted the front of the of the P-51s with a with a uh, it was actually a, a, a shark jaw in the front, but it was but they called them tigers, and that's how they got the name the Flying Tigers. Because they had these jaws in front, yeah, and very so famous. it wasn't like actual tigers. They got taught how to fly. So. <laughs> but they, what they did was, what was very interesting, is they to this day hold the record. They splashed more Japanese uh, zeros than any uh, more of the enemy planes than any time in history, and they still hold the record to this time wow. because General Chenault worked away. The zeros were faster than P fifty ones and P-52s, but they couldn't defend against two P-51s coming at them from an angle. And he knew that from his aerodynamic training as a stunt pilot. And so two of the Flying Tigers could take down any zero at any time, and they did. Oh, oh I got it. Wow. Sounds like a good movie. It's like, sort of like, a, like a force multiplier thing, because you have the two, and so then they well, they, it's the, the angle they couldn't they could only they couldn't defend against both of them are you going to so, demand a cameo in this movie since you're the head of the studio <laughs> no but like anyway the 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 really cool thing about this movie is that it first of all it shows the relationship between the american pilots and the chinese pilots and the u.s army becomes so frustrated because the flying tigers are outshining everyone in the world and here and here chenault is one of their uh, in their eyes previously almost disgraced pilots but he's he's being held up as this master hero so he's still in the military reserves because he he had re retired and so they re they re reactivated him and drafted all of the american pilots and turn the Flying Tigers into an American unit, so they could credit, they could take credit oh. for the for the successes. Wow, that was what I was waiting for because I was like, I I thought that the Flying Tigers, because I remember the iconic you know graphics on the planes, and I thought, right. oh, that was an American thing, but it was actually a Chinese thing, and they 
they co-opted it in and made it an American thing. Well, they there call were that cultural appropriation, Brendan. <laughs> it was I'm generally a, being okay. run by the Chinese. Uh, uh, I mean, it was, it was, but excuse me, it was primarily being run by Americans on behalf of the Chinese as mercenaries. Um, and as, as the U.S. entered World War II, remember, they're doing this before the U.S. is in World War II. And so right. when the U.S. enters World War II, that's when they, when they draft Chenault. And at that, uh, and eventually he becomes, uh, they turn him into a general. And that's how he becomes General Claire Lee Chenault, the famous so general. When will we expect this movie to be coming out? I don't know. We're, oh, okay. we're, still, in, we're still in pre-production right now. Okay, yeah. got it. But it's it's kind of, has, it been, has it been cast already, or um, is it we've like got some, but I can't release any information. Well, it's okay. on that. I won't get. I won't get. Yeah. <laughs> but it's going to have pushy, a. But... It's going to have a killer soundtrack, though, right? Yes. This seems like a movie that's got a killer soundtrack. I'm going to make sure of it. I, I want to actually get an actual flying tiger in the movie, though, like an actual tiger that they project into space or something. That wouldn't be historically <laughs> accurate, Matt. Yeah, that might yes. might be a little off. But it could be the like 40s. the MGM lion, like that actually could actually, you know, shoot the MGM lion into space. <laughs> the Allied artist Tiger. We are we we are um, there are a few of the old flying tiger planes that still are airworthy, and uh, we will be shooting some of those uh, some air scenes, and then. Uh, to to use as our as our uh, base for some of the animated uh, we we don't have enough to to actually show all of the as many as they had in the air at one time but we can right. we can multiply them electronically well, it right, good that you guys are moving back into the film industry at Allied Artists as well as uh, signing on new artists so for well so we've for been distributing all along uh -huh. but strictly distribution not so much production. Well, we've produced a few things too. Okay. Well, but I'm saying the distribution was like the bigger arm of it all or? Yes, since the, since the 80s. Okay, fair enough. So, so for you personally, what is it about what you're doing that drives you every day? Where's where the thing that still keeps a flame alive? Because you said earlier, your flame had kind of dimmed in terms of dealing with new artists. So what what's the current flame that you have where you're going this is the thing that's exciting for me this is the thing as opposed to again talking to us which we understand but from that point on what keeps you going to work every day and going this is exciting well i'm very excited about uh rocky kramer okay and i think that he is the uh, the face of music in the future I think that he brings a very, uh, a new element. Uh, you know, he, he's a neoclassical metal um, that, but he definitely hits in that, also in the, in the straight rock area. I mean, he's got a song called Alcohol off the, off the current album, off Firestorm. And Alcohol is a, a straightforward, um, somewhat heavy, but it's a, it's a real rocking song. And his last single that we took to number one on the global DRT um, uh, chart it was a song called Rockstar. We put together, if you've seen it, he's got a pretty clever music video um, that is a homage to 80s MTV uh, uh, videos. It's, it's uh, tongue-in-cheek. 
and he um, in there he it's it's a live concert and everything that you heard of going wrong in the in the 80s uh, live music occurs in this video. You know, one of the uh, one of the uh, the bass player gets shocked by a microphone. The um, uh, he gets stuck on a, a a fly in a flying routine. I don't know if you remember when artists like from Bon Jovi and so on would come flying across the audience right. in mm -hmm. scenes from the 80s. Well, um, ours gets stuck in in the air. Yeah, I saw yeah. the video. I remember his feet like dangling. That's right. And and you see Rocky looking like what happened to him? <laughs> so, okay, great. So so Rocky Kramer, is he going to have some association with the uh, the General Chenault, uh, Chenault film? No, I hadn't oh. thought about that, but yeah. I mean, we might crossover. be able to use some of, we might certainly use some of his music because his music would be, um, his music would certainly lend itself to uh, a picture of that nature. Yeah, there's certainly plenty of artists out there who have gone from being big rock stars to working in film. And in terms of, I mean, uh, gosh, so many. Trent Reznor. Trent Reznor's one. And uh, uh, Danny Elfman. Mark Mothersbaugh. Danny Elfman is one I was. Certainly thinking. Danny Elfman. I, yeah. um, um, I, I go back to days when, uh, I, I mean, I remember him in Oingo Boingo. Right. And I remember... Uh, being at the premiere um, of the, um, I want to say it was Batman. Um, and he, I think it was the first thing he did for Warners. And I was at the, at the premiere and uh, I didn't even realize he had, he had done the, the music. And when it, when the, when it premiered in the big uh, Warner Bros. unit said, you know, music by Danny Elfman. I said, boy, talk about coming forward. Yeah, and he did, did all, and but Danny is uh, just one of the one of the finest uh, uh, music men there is. You got to see Forbidden Zone, the movie he did in the seventies. Did you ever see that weird black no, and white I, movie? I didn't know about. Look that. it up, Danny Elfman. Danny Elfman did a movie in the seventies. Yeah, but before when there was the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo, before they were a successful band, him and his brother directed it, I believe. And it is the craziest cult movie you've ever seen. Her villages. Is the they director did the music. Uh, his brother directed it. He did the music and acts in it. He's in it. And it's a weird really? cult movie. Wait a you minute. Definitely check it out. Hervé Villachez is in it. <laughs> yes. It's What's it called? The Forbidden Zone. The Forbidden Zone. All right. It's I'm, really I'm, good. I'm googling that like I'll right check after. Check that. See, that's a Netflix. Uh. <laughs> yeah. and, that might be free on YouTube. That sounds like a yeah. free movie on YouTube. Yes, I would YouTube be. it first. May well be. <laughs> YouTube or uh, on some other random cable channel like, uh, you know, sci-fi extras or something like that. I anyway, so I know we've come to, to near the time that you had allotted for us. We greatly appreciate it. Unfortunately, our client basically got incredibly short trip today, which was uh, Dead Rockers, Where Are They Now? So... Um, Unless you've got a few minutes where we want to delve into um, where it essentially would be um, rock and roll stars who passed early, where do we see that their careers to have come? Um, it's just that you were, had such a fascinating life that we just got wrapped up in it. So <laughs> it's like, for well, example, Andy Gibb, I mean, he was like getting ready to just really, really, really explode whenever he passed. And it's kind of like, where do you think that would have gone to? It would have been a really good segue into this. Well, I know where that would have gone. And that's that. Uh, Andy 
had um, a lot of people don't understand. It was very complicated, the relationship between Andy and his, his brothers. Um, he was very close to Barry. They, they used to call them the, the twins, even though they're separated by 10 years in age. But uh, And Barry is much taller than, than Andy was. But they, they even look a lot alike. And they have yeah. uh, they had birthmarks in about the same places and, and so on. So I mean, they very really were almost like twins Otherwise, other than the fact they're separated by 10 years uh, in age. But um, uh, Andy had, it's not a secret, Andy had a problem with substance abuse. And he, uh, he had uh, a couple of rounds at Betty Ford and he had had a, a number of uh, relapses. And, he, and part of it was because Stiggy treated him very badly towards the end of his, of his uh, contract with with Stigwood, well, he owed Stigwood a record, but Stigwood wouldn't wouldn't put it out, and so he couldn't really pursue his career. Yet he was stuck by contract there, and he, because of the substance abuse, he had uh, become he had to file for bankruptcy, and part of the reason for filing bankruptcy was to get out of the Stigwood contract, and he did. Well, he had no contract at that point. He was a free agent. So um, Robin had, went to Chris Blackwell uh, at Island Records and said, hey, I want you to, to do me a favor. I want you to, we have, we're gonna put together a new album for Andy. Uh, we want you to, to, uh, to sign him. And Chris Blackwell said, you know, he's got a pretty serious uh, substance abuse problem. He says, "Well, he's um, he's past that now. He's been to he's been to rehab and so on. And rehab wasn't the the catch-all that it is today. Um, and he was very and, he, and so Robin said, "Wait a second. I'll make you a deal. If you sign uh, you sign Andy to a deal to put out his his next album." we will put him in the Bee Gees. He will become the fourth member of the Bee Gees and we will tour on your album playing for, with him. And Chris Blackwell couldn't turn that down. So, I mean, really Robin did that, which was amazing. And he did that and that, that was, uh, but anyhow, so the point that I'm making is that had Andy, Andy then, by the way, left and went to Robin's estate in uh, England and to write the album. And he was waiting for Barry to join him there so they could complete writing the songs and start producing the new album. And he died while he was in, uh, he had the, the heart problem while he was in, in England. So he never got a chance to put out that album. And so where he would have gone, is I think that album, um, he, was, he uh, was in a fairly uh, good frame of mind at the time that, that um, he went over there. That did change a little bit once he got there because uh, Barry got tied up in a production and didn't get over there when he expected to. But other than that, and Barry discusses that uh, in, a, in a couple of interviews he's done because he feels bad about it. But, um, 
had Barry gotten uh, over there and helped him writing the, the, the song and released an album on Island Records, which at that time was very hot, and he had gone out and toured with the Bee Gees, I think Andy would have just gone into the stratosphere. Yeah, sounds like it. And would he have gone on and solo or with the Bee Gees if he would have been? Well, I think he would have gone on as the as the Bee Gees. It would have been a member of the Bee Gees with a solo career. They all had solo careers, too. Yeah. But only Andy's was strictly started on his own and wasn't connected to the Bee Gees in that way. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you very, very much for for sticking around with this. Uh, I know you're you're an incredibly busy man. And uh, for everybody who doesn't remember, this is Kim Richards, who's the <laughs> chairman of the board and CEO of Allied Artists International. And uh, before too long, again, he'll be opening up his podcast division, which uh, Greg actually is going to run. The rest of us. Will yeah. Greg. Greg will just oh. fire us. And uh, <laughs> first thing, executive order. There you I'm go. sure that's true. <laughs> a strongly worded email. I like it. <laughs> well, it's wonderful meeting each of you. Yeah, well, oh, thank great. You thank you. Yeah, and there, so there wasn't a whole lot of quibbling, squabbling, or, or bickering. So that yeah, well, nicely. you know, we were trying to be respectful, but uh, if we have you on again, we'll tear you down. <laughs> yeah, or each other. Either way, that'll okay. Happen that'll normally. work one way or the other. <laughs> Right. I mean, the main thing was we, we were trying to get to know you because because you were the last minute uh, replacement for our guest who uh, was was. I, I'm so, pitch hitting for our, for the head of our we music. Greatly, group. greatly appreciate you stepping down into the muck with us. So yes, um, well, so much. if you have an opportunity, make sure you do uh, you do interview John because he has a very illustrious uh, career that he can dis uh, discuss with you, and he's he's quite an interview. Yeah, we would have gone into a whole different arenas if I had had the opportunity to just like really like uh, do a full re public records check on you and uh, <laughs> got your social security number. Cyber stalk him. Exactly. There you, go. you know, find out well, who your ex-wives are and talk to them <laughs> prior to coming on. We could well, have made really John good. is far more interesting than me. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Well, hopefully, hopefully he's going to be doing better because uh, the thing that Matt described at the beginning of the show, I don't even, I'm going to try to block out of my memory now. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. I'm going to check on him as soon as we get done here. Okay. Well, okay. thank you again. You've left the offices of quibble, squabble, and bicker. It's over. It's over. It's time for you to go home. It's over. It's over. Go away now.